Our scripture reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 11, 24 through 27, 31 through 37, and 41 through 49. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for the battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you should be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed with great and greatly afraid. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who delivers me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord will be with you. And the Philistine moved forward and came nearer to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he dis- disdained him, but for he was but a youth, ready and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of your host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. 
that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Now all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle of the is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Thanks. I, I'm glad you're, 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 it's good to be seen by you too. Thanks for expressing that sentiment. Uh, all right, everybody be quiet real quick. Let's be real quiet. Let's see if it's still as loud as it was in the first service. It's kind of gone. That's, that's sad. But I'm sure you heard it walking here, right? You heard the song of the cicadas today. Do you know what they're singing to you? They're like, what? Yeah. Welcome to Okinawa summers, baby. Hey, the best time of year here in Okinawa occurs while the cicadas are singing their song. I love it. Love it. It's kind of sad that they're not singing right now. They were loud all through the first service. It was like our noise and then cicada noise. We were competing the whole time. Okay, let's pray, and we will get right down to work. Emma, good job. That was, um, that was uh, told... Kennedy in the first service she read, that was probably one of the longest passages that we've had read publicly without interruption for uh, any one of our worship gatherings. Did a great job. Did a great job. Father, thank you for this morning. We want to pause and recognize that we're your kids and we need you. We're not here because we have something awesome to give to you. We're here because uh, we need what you have to give to us. And so we pray that you would pour out your grace on us in Jesus pray that your spirit would be present in power. Father, we pray that your kingdom come, your will be done uh, on earth, here in Okinawa, and here in our hearts as it is in heaven. We pray that you'd give us today uh, the daily bread that our souls need to be satisfied and nourished in you. We pray that you would forgive us our trespasses, our sins against you, and, and incline our hearts to forgive those who have sinned against us. Father, you know that we're quick to run to temptation, so I pray that you would uh, deliver us from evil, rescue us from our own running feet, and lead us into paths of righteousness. And remind us this morning that it's your kingdom, your power, and your glory, so that we can be rescued from our all-too-often attempts to live to build our own kingdoms, or to live under the perception of our own power, or to live for our own glory. Your kingdom, your power, and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we continue our summer sermon series entitled Ordinary People, Gospel Power. And what we've been doing is we have taken that theme from one verse in the New Testament, and then we have gone to the Old Testament to find examples of ordinary people like we are, who embody the beautiful truth that we see in, you ready? 2 Corinthians 4.7, and I have my helper right over here from the Cipriano family. Let me get her a microphone. Are you ready, sweetie? All right, so last week Amina came up and shared with us our theme verse. Sec first, is it 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians? Thank you. 2 Corinthians 
4, 7. I get them confused all the time. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. So are you ready to share with us? Okay. Can you hold that? Or do you want me to hold it? Um, mm, you have this treasure in Jesus Christ. You share that thing. Passing power from God and not to us. Yeah, good job, girl. Good job. Oh, go ahead, wait. Go ahead. Second Corinthians 4, 7. There it is, girl. Good job. High five. High five. I'm proud of you. Good job. Really good. Thank you. Good job, girl. She worked, you worked so hard at that, and it showed. Good. I'm very proud of you. And you know what? You set an example for the rest of us. We can all learn and memorize Bible verses. Thanks for, thanks for showing us that. Surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are ordinary people, and our Father likes it that way. He delights in our ordinariness. You don't have to be a special person to become a Christian. You don't need to prove to God that you're worth having in the family. And there's nothing special that you have to do to, to keep earning your place in the family. Jesus is the special one. We are ordinary sons and daughters. There is power in the family. We don't bring the power to the table. It's God's power. He gives us his power through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Ordinary people, gospel power. This morning, our story is about impossible odds. And really, our story is about deep fear in the face of impossible odds. If I were to say to you, or um, you've heard this question before, we would ask, what are the odds under what circumstances do you invoke that question? When do you say, man, what are the odds? What type of circumstances? What are the odds? Impossible ones, right? What are the odds? What are the odds that you, you growing up as a kid, what are the odds that you would grow up and live for a season of life in Okinawa, Japan? What are the odds of that? Kids, hey, what are the odds that on the way home, your parents are like, you know what? Forget lunch. We're just eating ice cream for the rest of the day, and they take you to ice cream. What are the odds? Is it happening? Very slim to none, right? I like sports. Uh, specifically, I like football. My Buffalo Bills are. Get, get used to it. The odds-on favorite to win, to win the Super Bowl uh, this coming season. It's great. It's going to be great. Uh, it's not like this. It's like this. Uh, my Phillies, my baseball team, not so much. Like their odds for success later in the year aren't so, aren't so great. Um, what are the odds that I eat a can of, uh, uh, that I eat canned ravioli? Slim to none. I'm glad you asked. When I was growing up, my family was, was fairly poor. We always ate on a budget, and there was this thing called a dented can store. And mom would always find all kinds of cool things at the dented can store. One time there was a case of dented ravioli cans. So we got a case. Uh, the dents had broken the seals, and I ate canned ravioli, and then canned ravioli ate me up, right? It just, just about put me in the grave. Uh, I will not be eating canned ravioli ever again in this lifetime. Uh, what are the odds of that, right? Um, what are the odds? This morning, our story is about impossible odds. The way that the story is told to us is meant to leave you as the listener feeling like that is an impossible story. 
And though it may have turned out the way that it did, that was a million to one. If we were to rerun or replay the same events over again today, no way it goes that way. Impossible. Impossible odds. We get a sense in the story that it's not just about impossible odds, but the fear that we all face in impossible odds. Look at this in verse 11, kind of in the heart of the introduction, and it goes like this. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. See, it's not... It's, it's, impossible odds are one thing, grappling with the fear that we all face in the midst of those impossible odds is another. Last night we were out snorkeling. Um, my kids and I go from where we could see the ground and on all of a sudden, not only could you not see the bottom, but it was just, it was deep and it was dark. And it's not so much the depth that scared, scared us, it was the not knowing what was living and waiting to eat us in those depths that struck fear in our hearts, right? So impossible odds. We don't know and fear strikes deep into our hearts. So we joke about odds, sports teams, maybe boyfriend, girlfriend, canned ravioli, ice cream instead of lunch. But let me just ask you this as we begin. Would you consider with me right now, where are the deep valleys in your life? And in those valleys, what scenarios, what situations, what people are to you representative of impossible odds and how are they striking fear into your heart? Where is the brokenness? Where is the wounding? Where are the impossibilities? Where are the, the, the relationships that are deeply wounded and seemingly irreparable? Impossible odds. Our big idea for the morning is, I'm sorry guys, I passed that up. Um, you got the, the sermon note sheets in the back and feel free to grab one and kids make sure I get it later so I can get it on the screen uh, next week. This is Pippa Pittman's and she gave it to me after the first service and I'm just going to let her preach the sermon before I preach the sermon. Here's what she wrote in her, in, in her what does this teach me about God or the gospel section. She wrote based on this story, not only the small one loses, not only the big one wins. God always wins. There it is. That's the sermon from this passage of Scripture. Pippa nailed it in her notes. So here's our big idea. Outcomes defy odds when ordinary people depend on God. Kids, if that's too much or if my first line is confusing to you, uh, probably a really good big idea for the whole passage is just the last three words of that sentence. Depend on God. When life is impossible when the valley is deep, when there is a giant in the valley and the giant strikes fear into your heart, when you're afraid, don't fight harder. Depend on the God who fights for you, right? Depend on God. But what we're going to see in our story is even in the face of impossible odds, Outcomes can defy those odds, not when we're really good or special Christians, but when ordinary people, ordinary Christians like you and I, depend on God. That's what we're going to see in this passage. All right, impossible odds. I'm just going to summarize this story briefly because for some of you, maybe this is the first time that you've heard the story of David and Goliath. And we didn't read the whole thing. That was a big chunk 
but we cut it in half by like 50% so that we could read it this morning. All right, so here's, here is the story summarized. Israel had a longtime enemy. They were known as the Philistines. They regularly crossed each other's borders and found each other at war all the time. Our story today just so happens that the Philistines had crossed Israel's border and they set up camp. When they crossed the border, they brought with them the most reputable dude they had in their armed forces, and his name was Goliath. We saw cubits and spans and all the things, so we're like, ah, we don't really know what's going on. His size, he was nine feet plus. He was probably nine and a half feet tall. What's the tallest person you've ever seen? Probably not nine feet, right? But I came close. Years ago, there was a guy who played basketball. His name was Minute Bull. And I saw him play in Philadelphia. I remember, my family ate dented canned ravioli. So we were like all the way up at the top of that stadium. Didn't matter. Manute Bull was a giant. He was almost eight feet tall. And I distinctly remember as a kid from all the way up in the nosebleeds, uh, a player, an opposing player takes a jump shot. And Manute Bull blocked the shot, not with his hands, not with his forearms, not with his elbows, not with his shoulders, his chest. The ball bounced off his chest. He was a giant. He was a giant. Goliath's minute bull, but with about 200 pounds more muscle on his frame. Big man. And so they go to battle. They're at a 40-day standstill. 40 days standstill. And so they've gone towards representative warfare. That's the taunting that was going on. Goliath's like, send me a man, I'll fight him. I lose, we serve you. You lose, you serve me. The armies didn't want to fight each other. So representative Goliath versus someone. Everybody's afraid. Nobody wants to fight. David, the shepherd boy, his three older brothers are in the army. He's too young to fight. He's somewhere between the ages of 12 and 20, probably. Definitely less than 20. Dad's, no, he couldn't fight. Dad sends him to the front lines with food for the families, which was common back then. You can enlist, take a commission, whatever. Your family's still going to feed you on the front lines. He brings the food. Dad's like, hey, and I want proof of life. Have a conversation with them. Find out how they're doing. Bring me something to prove that they're still alive. David goes to the front lines. Goliath comes out, starts his taunting. Everybody's afraid, and they start running. And David's like, what's going on, guys? Like, I thought, I, thought, I thought we believed in a God who was powerful. He fights for us. We don't need to be afraid of enemies. Why are we paralyzed? Why are we running away? From, why aren't they running? What's going on? And everybody's like, well, look at Goliath. Look. And then they're like, look. Look at Goliath. And oh, by the way, the king has promised whoever manages to kill him gets one of his daughters, gets a whole bunch of money, and his dad gets his, ta his house tax-free for the rest of his life. Like, just sweeten, sweeten it all up. Still, that was not incentive enough. Why? Because fighting Goliath was sure death. So David starts talking a big game. His older brother gets, ang gets angry at that, but it gets him a ticket into the king's tent. David's like, I can kill Goliath. Saul's like, no, you can't. David says, yes, yes, I can. Saul's like, no, you can't, but here's all my armor. David's like, I can't do it, not with that armor. So I was like, whatever, you're going to die anyway. He leaves the tent, marches to the front line. He and Goliath hurl insults at each other. David scoops down, picks up five rocks, puts them in a sling. 
whips a rock towards Goliath, hits Goliath in like the only exposed spot on his face where he could die. He's wearing 150 pounds of body armor. And you heard Emma read it. Not only the body armor, he had a full-grown man in front of him holding a shield that would have been bigger than that guy, right? Goliath was invincible. Stone hits Goliath, falls to the ground dead. David does what you would do in that situation, runs and picks up Goliath's sword. It's amazing he could even pick it up, chops his head off, picks it up by the hair, walks back to Saul's tent, like, told you, here it is. All of the Philistine army turns and runs about 10 miles. They try to run about 10 miles back to one of their cities, but on the way, they just get picked off after another, after another. And in the face of paralyzing fear and impossible odds, the most unlikely candidate kills the giant and rescues God's people. But you, you can't come away from the story being like, yeah, that really is possible. I'm going to go, like, I could probably do that right now. Like, I will be David, and I will go kill my Goliath right now. That's not the sense that we're supposed to have. Here's the sense we're supposed to have. Owen, you ready? Let's give people the sense it's supposed to have. Now, Owen's a fighter, okay? <laughs> Owen and I, we fight, right? Yeah, all right. Now, just so people in the back can see you, why don't you jump up on there? Stand all the way up. There we go. Okay, now we're about the same height. Good? So you're not going to hurt Owen's feelings, but Owen and I are going to help you capture the sense of the story, right? So who are you standing? Oh, wait, hold on. Hold on. Don't go anywhere. Okay, hold that. Who are you? Who are you representing right now? Who are you supposed to be? David. Okay, and I. Who am I? Goliath. Do you think David could beat Goliath? Yes. See, that's all. But that's Owen. He he does believe. And do you believe that you can beat me? Yes. I know. What did I tell you last night when I was talking to you? And what am I going to do to you when when you have kids of your own? Wrestle. And and what's going to happen when I wrestle you? You're gonna go down. <laughs> That's not what I said. I said I'm gonna crush you. <laughs> All right. So David's nine and a half feet tall. I mean Goliath's nine and a half feet tall, right? So I'm not nine and a half feet, but proportionally, if I'm Goliath, this would be the size difference between David and Goliath. Right here. To include I can grow a beard. David wasn't even shaving yet. That's kind of the point of the story. So look, you're not gonna hurt Owen's feelings, but if we had a, a UFC cage right here, right now, and Owen and I stepped into the cage, who wins that fight every single time? Mm, Johnny and me. <laughs> Johnny and you, no. <laughs> right? If we were actually fighting and I wasn't holding anything back, Owen gets crushed. Now, but that's not the full point of the story. Listen, because you've got the size difference, but then what's David wearing, or what's Goliath wearing? 150 pounds of armor and and he's got somebody holding a shield in front of him what's what's david got what was david wearing uh, did he have no armor? armor no armor now and so the odds get greater who wins this fight david no goliath no david you've read the story haven't you yeah yes. okay one more factor though it's a gunfight right it's a gunfight now they don't have guns but uh goliath Spear. The spearhead weighed 15 to 25 pounds. So his, that's, a, that's heavy. It's a gunfight. It's a gunfight. Now, what weapons did David walk in with? What did he have? 
Slingshot. Yeah. Do you know, uh, what, what comes out of the slingshot? Rocks. Rocks. Do you know what he had in his other hand, like what he would have used with a sheep? Do you know what it was? Mm. Like a stick or a staff, right? So basically, David walks into a gunfight with sticks and stones. Who wins that fight? David. <laughs> Every time, if God is not fighting, Goliath wins the fight. No. <laughs> so this is my confidence on Owen. Good job. Thanks for helping everybody understand the sense of the passage. There you go. I like that Owen's confident. It helps us wrap our heads around another contrast. It's not just impossible odds. It's that, no, it's that everybody on the battlefield knew they were impossible odds and were confident that David would die, okay? Uh, look, one at a time. We, we already saw it when Emma read. First, we have David's older brother. What was his response? Uh, skip past this one. Yeah, here we go. Eliab, his older brother, heard when he spoke to the men. Uh, so he heard David talking. And what, how does Eliab respond? Not, wow, my younger brother really has a high view of God. And wow, my younger brother believes that we could beat Goliath. No, angry that David would dare have the audacity to believe that Goliath could be defeated. Now imagine, 40 days and your 13-year-old brother shows up on the front line like, what are you guys doing? Like, I thought, didn't you train for this? Like, what's, what's wrong with you? So we, if you're an older brother or sister, you understand exactly what Eliab's feeling. And if you're a younger brother or sister, Coming from Owen's perspective, you just heard it. Like, you understand exactly how this conversation plays out. Eliab's angry because he disbelieves, right? Well, he believes the impossible odds, right? It's not just Eliab. David goes into Saul's tent. He's like, yo, I, I, can, I, can, I can kill Goliath. Here's Saul's response. Saul said to David, dude, you, no, you can't. You're a kid. You're a child. Goliath has been training for this since he was a child. You take care of sheep. You can't win. Impossible odds. Okay, so we have Eliab, we have Saul, and now we have even Goliath. Goliath was straight up insulted that David would be the one that Israel sent out. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a kid, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, my dog, are we playing games right now? You're coming at me with sticks? And so Philistine uh, Goliath curses David and says to him, hey, come here, son. I'm going to rip your body apart like a, like a loaf of bread, and I'm going to toss it to uh, the birds and the beasts so they can, they can eat lunch uh, with you, right? eat you for lunch. So he disbelieved. Uh, he wasn't the only one. This is actually my favorite response right here. Here's the response from the commander of Israel's army. This is my favorite. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he says to his commander, Abner, he's like, whose kid is that? And Abner's like, dude, king, as your soul lives, I have no idea who we're sending to his death right now. I have no idea who that is. No idea. Guys, there wasn't a single person there that day who believed that God's people could defeat this enemy and find freedom and flourishing again. Not one. Not a single one. And uh, look at this. Look at Here's their response. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, 
they ran away in fear. They ran away in fear. See, we've heard this story told so many times. And a good sermon, I think, this is probably not going to be a good sermon on David and Goliath, because I think if you're going to preach a good sermon on David and Goliath, what have you come to expect? We need to focus on David's sling. And how many stones went in there? Five. Okay, so I need five. If I'm going to kill my giants, I need five stones to go in my sling. So what are they, right? And then we speculate and we come up with a great list of five stones to put in your sling and we make this great sermon. It's not really what's going on in the, in the passage. Nobody believed. They ran in fear. And we want to jump and say, be like David without acknowledging that we more often than not are the people who were angry at David laughing at David, rejecting David, and actually running away from Goliath in fear. We are the runners running in the wrong direction. But look at this contrast with David, verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David what? He ran quickly, but which direction? toward 13-year-old David, ordinary kid, unarmed, slinging stones and sticks, sticks and stones in a gunfight, impossible odds that had paralyzed everyone else in fear, but he confidently runs towards the giant. What's going on with David? Well, we don't have to guess and we don't have to try to hyperbolize with five stones. We know what's going on with David. And we see it in his response. Here we go. Let me just show you this from verse 46 to 47. This is where David and Goliath are taunting each other. And David says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts. So he's taking Goliath's insult and just giving it right back with confidence. Why? Here's what motivated David right here. Here's why David's heart was different in the valley with the giant. That all the earth may know that there, there is a God. Number one, there is a God. Number two, that all this assembly may know that this God, the Lord, saves. So there is a God and that God saves, but he doesn't save through our perceptions of power, not sword and spear. That's not how he saves. He does save. Number three, for the battle is the Lord. So there is a God, God saves, and God owns the battle. His battle, not my battle. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. In other words, who bears the weight or the burden of having to win the battle with the giant? Not David. He's an ordinary person, an ordinary kid like you and me, but God himself. David's confidence is not in himself. His confidence is in God. Guys, it's really simple. Honestly, the math is really simple. If we are like the rest of the army and... What we see biggest and most 
most clearly is the giant in the valley. Whatever it is that has struck fear and paralysis into our souls, we run away. If, however, on the other hand, our view of God is bigger so that we see him as bigger than the giants and we see him as present in the valley and we see the fight as his and not ours and we believe deep down God saves and even if I die on the battlefield, God still ultimately saves. Well, we're still runners, but now instead of running away as an ordinary person, I have the courage now to run toward the giant. So guys, every sermon that you have heard about being better or stronger like David, throw it away. David was not better and he was not stronger. The difference was for them, the giant was big and dominant in their vision. For David, God was bigger and more dominant in his vision and put the giant in perspective. That's the difference. Not bigger view of you, bigger view of God. That's the difference. All right, so there is a God. David says there is a God. There's a lot wrapped up in that belief. It's not just that there is a God who's distant. There is a God who is present. There is a God who is powerful. There is a God who's created. There's a lot wrapped up in David saying that. David says there is a God. Man, so David was thinking of not only is there a God, but I've been created by that God. And when David invokes that line, he's actually thinking about his created purpose. There is a God, and God created David for a purpose. What was that purpose? To live for God's fame and to live for the good of other people, even if and especially when it would cost him something to live for the good of other people. There is a God. There is a God. There is a, there is a God who is over this battle right now. Yes, he's with us, but he's, he's not just one of us. He's above us and he's over us. There is a God. And God saves. God, this God saves. This God is a rescuing God. The God who created me has rescued me and he has proven his faithfulness and he will rescue me again. And maybe my favorite line that David uses, the battle is the Lord's. Guys, when we, dis when we talked about this at the beginning and we said, all right, what are the valleys and where are the giants? Where is the fear? Where is the paralysis? Where is the running? If you belong to God, if you are his son or his daughter, it's not your battle. That's his battle. The burden to win is not on your shoulders. God the Father actually looks at you as his son and his daughter and says, you can't do it on your own. You, you can't win this battle. It's mine. I take it. I take responsibility for it. Don't be stronger. Be more dependent on me. Depend on me. Outcomes defy odds when ordinary people depend on God. There is a God. God saves. The battle belongs to God. And God is going to defeat the enemy. I love, I love that David can go here confidently. He has not even started to fight Goliath yet. And he's already confident that God is going to win. Why? Because David can point to experiences in his past where God has 
rescued him and saved him and been victorious. Look at this. He's in the tent arguing with the king. The king's like, look, you're a kid. There's no way you can do this. But verse 34, David said to Saul, look, I used to keep sheep from my dad. And when there came a lion or a bear and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I grabbed him by the beard. Pretty cool. And crazy, actually. And struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. But look at verse 37. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. First, it sounded like David was bragging on himself. This is nothing. I've killed a lion and a bear. Goliath's got nothing on them. But then, but then he reminds us, oh, this is not, his confidence is not in himself. His confidence is in the God who has proven faithful in the past. So that, listen, all of David's previous conflicts actually fuel further confidence in his soul because in each one of them, God had shown himself to be faithful and present and fighting on his behalf. Guys, you're in a valley now. You're facing a giant now, a giant that is stronger than you are. But let me ask you, in the valleys you have been in before, earlier in your life, the giants that you have faced, the fears that you have wrestled with, where was God then? Maybe he felt absent, but time would prove that actually he was present and fighting even when you couldn't see it. And here you are. He sustained you to this point, and that's David's argument. He will prove to be faithful again. God is with me, and it's his battle, not mine. So as everybody else runs away, young David runs toward Goliath. Runs towards him. So what do we do with all this? Where do we go with this? What's, what's the story in the Bible for? Do I need to be like David? And if so, in what ways? Or does the story point to a bigger, more beautiful truth? Does David point me to Jesus and to the work of the gospel? So is the story all about Jesus ultimately? Is it about me in any way? What do I do with this story? Well, I think we can go to both places with this story. I think there is, a, there, is, there is a very real invitation for you as a follower of Jesus to emulate David. And I want to show you how. And I want to show you the beautiful thing that happens. But then we need to allow this story to serve its bigger intended purpose and point us to Jesus. But first, let me show you this. Um, guys, if you could put up there... Um, Verse 23. It says, David is talking with everybody. Goliath comes out. And he's, he's taunting them. And what does it say about David? What's it say? 
David Hurd. David Hurd. And we jump all the way down to 48, and in response, or 52, and in response, we already saw that David, what David hears, and then what does David do? He runs toward, while everyone runs away. And then in verse 52, we see this outcome. The men of Israel and Judah rose with what? A shout, like a, a brave shout. Wait, where's that coming from? Like the only shout they've been, the only noise they've been getting out all along is one of fear. They're screaming. Now they're shouting. They were screaming in fear. Now they're shouting like a brave, courageous, victorious kind of shout. Where'd that come from? They shout and then they also run into the battle. All because David heard and then David ran. You want to be like David? Like, if, if we're going to go there with this passage, great, let's do it. You want to be like David? Here's how we do it. Here's, here's how we do it. Where, where, where does God have you living right now? Where does God have you working? Where's your neighborhood? Where's your home? Who are your people? Your family? Your, your, your neighbors? Your coworkers? Okay? Think of those places and think of those people. Now, in your mind, just, just be there. Put yourself there and listen. Over the past month... What have you heard? And here's what I mean. David heard the sounds of the giant in the valley. He heard the sounds of the enemy of God's people dishonoring God and striking fear into the hearts of image bearers of God, right? Destroying people. That's what he heard. Where do you hear that same noise? You want to be like David? You listen. Quiet. Be present. What do you hear? You are surrounded by brokenness. We are surrounded by people who live in fear. We are surrounded by silence. We are surrounded by silence when enemies, if you will, giants, if you will, seasons in the valley, if you will, eat people up and destroy them. People are taken advantage of. People are abused. People are maligned. People are spoken evilly of. People are, people are taken advantage of. What do you hear? Not on the internet and not across the ocean. What do you hear in your neighbor? You want to be David? Close your mouth and listen with your ears. And ask God to help you hear the sound of the enemy and the sound of silence and the sound of the souls of people being crushed in the absence of an advocate. Listen. And then run. While others are running away in fear, your big view of God as the warrior in your place who fights the battle and wins the victories for the flourishing of other people. You run towards the giant, not with the pressure that you have to win, but with the understanding that in your presence, God is the one fighting. You listen and then you run. You want to be David, you listen and you run toward the battle, towards the absence. And then, look, it only took one person listening and running to inspire an army of people. What if, what if, 
we left here resolved to embrace that manner of living. We listened, we ran towards the suffering of people, we advocated and we were present, confident that God would fight flourishing people. What if 100 of us listened and ran? Imagine how many people could be inspired through that gospel work to live in the same kind of way for God's fame and the good of other people. That would be incredibly beautiful. But there's more we need to see here. Guys, do you have the picture of the, I skipped that in the beginning. Johnny, this, our sermon this week was a family effort. Uh, Johnny had asked if he could take a turn illustrating. You know, we've had different kids from the family illustrating each week. Johnny asked for this one, did a fantastic job. We sat down, I said, hey, here's what we, what do we see in this? So uh, we've got Israel in the red tents. They're in a deep canyon. We've got, uh, did, no, I just said that wrong. Was it the Philistines in the red tent? Was it the enemies in the red tent? Or Israel in the red tents? Israel, okay, Israel's in the red tents. Philistines are in the blue tents. We've got the battle going on in the middle, David and but then up at the top, I want to draw your attention to the top. It's like, what do we have a thief going up there for? Two reasons. And this is where I want to take us with this sermon as we close. There are two very important names in this sermon. Uh, in verse 1, you see that the Philistines are in this place called Ephes Damim. Okay, Ephes Damim. Uh, let me explain this, guys, and I'll explain the other name, and then let's go back to the picture. Ephes Damim. Ephes Damim means, you ready for this? This is cool. Boundary of blood. That's what it means. Border of blood. Okay? Ephes Damim. And then we see Israel had camped in this place called the Valley of Elah. Elah is the name of a tree. So literally we could say the Valley of the Tree. Okay? All right, let's go back to the picture. And let's make these two points in closing. Which one do we want first? Border of blood or valley of tree? You want valley of tree first? Great. Okay, perfect. Valley of tree. Guys, this is how this story points us to the beauty of Jesus and the gospel. Do you remember last week? Where did Naaman have to go to be healed? Remember? He had to go down deep into a river valley to find healing. Now, where does the hero of the story have to go to defeat? of God's people and rescue, rescue God's people. Where's he got to go? Down deep into a river valley. Now this one's a dry river valley, but it is a river valley. That's how David was able to scoop up like his five smooth stones, okay? They were the size of tennis balls, by the way. That's what scholars say. These weren't just little pebbles. David was slinging tennis balls at Goliath's forehead. You're like, because you're always wondering, why does Goliath fall down when a rock hits him in the forehead? Because it was the size of a tennis ball. That's why he died. That's big rock. Valley of trees. That's the gospel pattern. Do you want to be rescued? You got to go down to the valley. God's enemy is going to be defeated down in the valley. You are going to be rescued down in the valley. You were living in the valley. God, through the person of Jesus, Jesus left heaven and where did he go? He went down. And he went down into the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because that's where you were as a rebel. And you know why else he had to go down into the valley? Because there was a giant in the valley that you could not defeat. And that's why the ultimate point of the story is not, you go be David. The point of the story is, 
David is a foreshadowing of the true and better king that would come to rescue God's people. God used David on that, on that day to rescue his people, and it pointed to a time where the true and better anointed king would come and rescue God's people from an enemy they couldn't defeat on their own. And Jesus left heaven, and he descended down deep into the valley, and guys, the valley of the tree, deep in that valley... Jesus climbed up on a tree that rightfully belonged to you and me as a judgment for our rebellion. And Jesus defeated our enemy, hanging on a tree deep in the valley of the shadow of death in your place and mine. Jesus is the only one who can defeat the enemy of sin, death, and rebellion against God. You can't beat that. Only Jesus could defeat that enemy in our place. The valley of the tree. The story points to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better David. We were in a valley with an enemy that we couldn't defeat. And the good news of the gospel is, while everyone else was paralyzed with fear or running away, Jesus ran into the valley and defeated the giant of sin and death in our place. I'm surprised you didn't want the border of blood first. I mean, that's got gospel implications too, does it not? That's where we lived in rebellion to God. And that's where Jesus went. And that's where Jesus himself spilled his own blood. So that we wouldn't have to. So there's gospel there too, but I think there's one more beautiful connection for us um, as if we're looking for ways that this story matters to our day to day. And here's how it matters. Some of us are bored of following Jesus. Some of us look at the story and be like, man, it'd be really cool if something like that could happen in my own life. I wish it could. But all the while, we've kind of grown up in a community that has us comfortable in safe places story does not exist in our Bibles if David didn't have his Bethlehem backyard. David left his backyard in Bethlehem and went towards the border of blood where the giant could be Guys, when Jesus looked at you and said, hey, follow me. The invitation was to leave the safety and the comfort of our westernized religious Christianity and to walk our religious backyards and into the brokenness of the borders of blood that surround every one of us. So it is entirely possible the reason why we don't experience these kinds of moments with powerful presence of God and giants being slayed, if you will, and people being set free is because we have learned a comfortable Christianity that is all about us and our happiness and our safety. That's how we pray, isn't it, right? Father, thank you for this food. Pray that as we go about our way, you keep us safe and bring us back home. Do we not pray for that all the time with our kids? What if we stop praying for certainty 
or I'm sorry, what if we stopped praying for safety and started praying for certainty as we follow Jesus into the borders of blood? What if the whole reason God the Father moved you to Okinawa was so that He could move you, His son or His daughter, into a border of blood where there was not already one of His kids living for the good of other What if that's why you got orders here? Father, give us the certainty to leave our backyards and to stop clinging to safety and to press into the boundaries of the borders of blood. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot here. There's a sense in which we got to be more like David, but there's a sense in which that's not the point. Jesus, you are the true and better David. So Jesus, we thank you that you walked confidently into the valley of our shadow of death and you got up on that tree and you defeated our greatest enemy, sin and death. Thank you. But then Jesus, thank you for inviting us to follow you as you lead us into boundaries or borders of blood for the good of other people. Jesus, I pray that you would change our hearts so that we stop viewing safety as a value And instead, we start praying for certainty. A confidence not in ourselves, but in you. That you are present, that you are fighting. And that we can press into these dark and broken places for the good of other people and for your fame. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.